Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to a bonus edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Nico Pereira, brilliant tennis mind, tennis channel analyst, even better person, good friend of mine, and uh, I've been wanting to have him on for a while. Glad we could get it done. As promised, the U.S. Open power rankings are coming out in this episode, but uh, for the first time, I don't think I've ever done this before. I uh, I have Nico join me as I go through my power rankings, and I'm able to bounce the ideas off of him and get his thoughts on the players who are included in the power rankings. Before I do that, we do discuss the crazy day that has gone down in Montreal. The top two seeds are out. Daniil Medvedev at the hands of Nick Kyrgios. Carlos Alcaraz at the hands of Tommy Paul. And I also asked Nico about Francisco Serendolo and Sebastian Baez. Got to get Nico's thoughts on a any great South American player coming up the ranks. Nico is going to be right on that. He is the authority on uh, tennis in that part of the world. So I got his thoughts on um, on those two guys as well. But before I get to our conversation with Nico, just wanted to get a quick word in on Carlos Alcaraz specifically. Because uh, he took to social media, sent out an interesting tweet that I didn't get to talk about. He said, and I quote, It was the first time that I couldn't handle the pressure. I have to be ready to have this pressure, to have these kinds of moments, and to learn how to handle it. Carlos in March and April, there was a certain air of invincibility about him. It, it was like It was like nerves weren't a thing. And that was something that I covered and pointed out repeatedly, and we're starting to just see that turn a little bit. It feels like in some big moments, he's gotten into his own head. Three for 11 on break points in this match. Uh, lost a match point, backhand return into the net. And you know if you watched last week's or two weeks ago Monday match analysis when I broke down the final uh, between Sinner and Alcaraz, the number one thing that I was critical of Carlos on was uh, how many backhand returns he missed on breakpoint, and most of them into the net. And that's how this match point went. But ultimately, look, he had a lead. He went up a set. At the end of the match, he actually ended up winning more total points than Tommy Paul. Just didn't play the big ones well. Tommy played the bigger ones better. And we get more into the match, but it's just interesting to see that the the mental side is starting to become a challenge for Carlitos as it would for any human being. But at 19 years old, to experience what it feels like to be a number two seed at a Masters 1000 tournament and play a first round match that you are expected to win in a big stadium, 
Well, that's the kind of experience that most players don't get until they're further down the road from an age standpoint than what Carlos is right now. So the experiences that he is getting right now, that's a that's a well-earned advantage that he has. But it's something to monitor. Right now, it seems like he's starting to get in his head a little bit. And uh, as he has now admitted, he's going to have to work that out. Here's Nico Pereira. We're joined for the first time by my good buddy, Nico Pereira, an analyst who you know very well from his work on Tennis Channel. And I know uh, a lot of my my viewers in South America love him and miss him on, on ESPN as well. And uh, Nico, you've started a pod as well. Uh, great to have you on. Welcome to Monday Match Analysis. Uh, but we've been we've been looking forward to this and trying to get this together for a long time. Glad we could do it. Hey, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to take the time to say hello to all your viewers there and congratulate you for your show. And uh, what a start of the summer it's been after Wimbledon. It's just fantastic tennis going on at the moment. Absolutely. And you have started a podcast, right? I want to make sure that people know where to find that. Yes, we, we started a podcast called Tennis Infinito with my ex-ESPN partner, Javier Frana. He will always be a brother. And we're having fun talking about tennis, you know, once or twice a month. And uh, that's the handle right there, Tennis Infinito. You can uh, look it up through my bio or Javi's. But thank you very much for the plug, man. Beautiful. All right. This wasn't my plan, but sometimes you got to tear up the script because Canada's been crazy today. I know that you've been busy. You were on the air this morning. Uh, you've done another podcast as well. So uh, I don't know which uh, what you've been locked into specifically, but I do know that uh, you were just enjoying Medvedev Kyrgios. Let's hit that right away, Nico. I thought that Nick would be running on empty by now, and he's not. A lot of people thought that after Wimbledon, he took some time. Then he had a bit of a knee soreness, which he couldn't play in, in, in Atlanta, the singles. But he went anyways and won the doubles. You know? So he's won three titles, including the Australian Open in doubles. I think that's helped him quite a bit. And uh, then won Washington and, and just took down the number one player in the world. I've been keeping an eye on him. Actually, a couple of weeks before Wimbledon, I signed Nick Kyrgios and Gael Monfils to play an exhibition in Mexico, November 9th. So everybody that wants to join us is, is welcome. So I'm very excited about it. And I think I got off easy because if I would have tried hiring him now, he would be a little bit more expensive. <laughs> that's uh, that's perfect. Like, yeah. I don't know that there are two better players to, to pull off an exhibition. I mean, they are, they are, they're at least up there. That's awesome. Um, physically, I can't believe he's been able to do this because I, I knew I know the racket skills are there, the talent is there. That's been very obvious. But I feel like what he's shown in 2022, especially on the hard court, because you know you, you get through Wimbledon, it's grass, the points are so short, it's a little easier on your body. But what he's done here on the hard court, I just feel like he's showing that he's in the best shape that he's ever been in. Do you do you see that compared to watching Nick in past years? Is it the physicality that's that's jumping out to you? Not only that, his, his mental strength, his, his uh, emotional stability has, has brought him where he is right now. But he did say that he worked very hard in the offseason. It started showing uh, 
right away with his good play in Australia, lost in, in, in four sets there, a tight one to Medvedev it precisely. But you could tell that there was something different uh, about him in, in terms of physique. He, he's a good mover for a guy 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he has great hands. I think those have improved, improved with, the, with the doubles play. And uh, the stamina is there because uh, you don't, you don't maintain your level like that at, uh, in this grueling a schedule unless you're in, in top shape. And he seems to have certainly paid his dues. And we're all happy. We're all uh, better tennis uh, lovers for it because we get to enjoy uh, a player like Nick Kyrgios with that talent. And now he seems to be ready physically and mentally. On the Medvedev side of things, I want to to talk about his return strategy because this is another match where there's a lot of serve and volley. We saw Djokovic at the Paris Masters last year, basically on the deuce side, almost every single point serve and volley. Nick was coming in on uh, on most of his service points here. What can Medvedev do about that? Because that's clearly in the scouting report. There are some players who who don't even serve and volley that much, but when they play Medvedev, now they start doing it because they know it's a good play against him. Well, that's kind of the trick of returning back there. What I, I don't agree with is with him not making an adjustment because he was not touching the ball much in the Kyrgios serves. Yes, he had chances. Yes, he did win that first set. But I think, especially on second serves, Medvedev could have used stepping into the court a little more just to change the pace of Kyrgios that was dominating with, with his serve. But, you know, one of the most cerebral, cerebral and, and intelligent players out there is that new Medvedev, so who am I to, to question uh, his strategy? But that would, that would be something that I would look into for the next time he plays someone like Kyrgios. Yeah, I certainly would, would love to see just the, the variation and uh, the options. Do you, to, to use a different return position, is that something that you need to first do on the practice court before you can implement it in the match? It seems like Daniil doesn't, you know, he likes to obviously return from the back fence and there there's there's no other option for him. Is that something where he needs to commit on the practice court to practicing that uh, that more advanced, uh, closer in return position? I think a guy of his talents can return wherever he wants. He can return sitting down in the changeovers. That's how good he is. But uh, definitely, because it's not only the return, it's the second, the third shot, how you set up the point when you play from way back there. What he's looking for is for a longer ball flight to allow him to get to the middle, maybe a deeper return with a different trajectory for the opponent to deal with. We see Rafa being the first one to, to really do a team, uh, used it very successfully as well. There are some guys going all the way back there. We saw Emer last week trying to to do it, but in terms of Medvedev, it's just a matter of who you're playing against. If you're playing against the best server in the game today, arguably him and Isner, to put you know the two biggest servers out there. If you're playing against somebody like that, you might want to switch what they're looking at just to try and get them off their rhythm. It's something that has worked for other people, and I, you know, I it would surprise me a little bit that he didn't do it today. Yeah, uh, me as well. Great points. Uh, how much of Alcaraz, Tommy Paul, were you able to catch? 
we we watched it off the corner of our eye while watching or working on the Coco Golf uh, match because we had the monitors, you know where it is, and uh, we kept an eye on it, and it was just fascinating tennis, uh, both matches, both the the woman and the man. But to to answer your question about Paul and Alcaraz, two of the quickest guys, if if not the two quickest guys on the circuit, we saw the recoveries that that they made just. Great ball striking. Tommy Paul has come a long way. Talk about stamina and somebody that, that used to go away during matches. Not the case today. He was very strong down a set in 4-1, won 11 out of the next 15 games uh, and finally bested the number two seed in, in a player that everybody has been admiring. But watch out for Tommy Paul this summer. He really wants to do well and he has put in the hours as well. Yeah, I love the tennis Paul's been playing. On the Alcaraz side, if we spoke after Madrid, Nico, Carlos, he's on the top of the world. Miami champion, Madrid champion, semifinal in Indian Wells. Just that one loss to Corda. But other than that, it was it was flawless stuff. Since then, he he has shown some vulnerabilities in the sense that he's just lost some matches. What have have we learned about Carlos in the last couple months um, about his game and where he's at right now, 19 years old as a player? Well, his forehand was spotty today. And this is a guy that not many of the top guys had seen too much or played against. So, so I, I guess it's a, it's a bit of a funk, but expect him to get out of it. I mean, the guy's so good. He's such a complete player that he will get out of it. Uh, at a young age, it, it's normal. To, to maybe have more ups and downs. That's why the, the guys at the top are a bit older. They're a bit more mature. But I'm sure Carlos, with the great team that he has around him, especially Juan Carlos Ferrero, I'm sure they'll, they'll figure it out and they'll, they'll put it together sooner rather than later. Do you think that in a couple of years we'll see a more patient Alcaraz or is this just how he's going to play? Constantly looking to finish the point, you know, going down the line, hitting a drop shot, coming forward. Like there's, there's no, there's not a lot of neutrality in his tennis, right? I agree with you. Uh, and I think that's something that comes again with experience and maturity. We, we don't like him to, because that's one of the most fascinating things, how he goes for extreme shots in difficult situations. And that's what's captivating because up to now it's been working. So, you know, players are kind of expecting that from him. They don't play that safe in an advantageous situation because they know that Alcaraz is going to go for the shot. So they might be watching a little bit and that could be one of the reasons. But I think that with maturity and with experience will come maybe a little bit more caution, especially in certain points where he goes for that drop shot from way behind this, the baseline. It, it, it's been working, but the guys are noticing. So uh, uh, that's something that he's going to have to take into account. And that, that is part of the constant process of improvement, that especially the guys at the top have to keep reinventing themselves because people are aware with all, all these analytics available to everybody, it's easy to find out other players' tendencies. So you have to constantly keep uh, uh, adding new weapons or, or improving certain holes that your game might have. And that's what makes it so fascinating. Yeah, Nico, you love all, all sports. And um, I guess a good analogy would be it's harder to play quarterback in your second year, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Sophomore fun. Right. Okay, we are going to get to the U.S. Open Power Rankings, which, if, if you're unaware, I've always done this on my own. So I'm very excited to, 
to bring you on uh, okay. to to share the power rankings, um, which is something kind of a little bit different. But before we get to that, uh, you are the authority on South American tennis and two guys I want to ask you about. They've caught my eye as of late. The first one is Francisco Sarundolo, who won uh, Bostad first uh, title on the tour, made the semis in Hamburg the, the very next week. He's 23. We've seen him get uh, better and better, uh, kind of arrived last year, but but suddenly he's looking phenomenal. What has uh, what has clicked for him? And and for a late bloomer, I'm curious: Are there any? Um, do you know why it took the time that it did for Sarindolo to blossom? Well, he's the son of an ex-pro uh, and and a tennis teacher, a lifelong tennis teacher, very nice guy, Toto his father, and, and um, he has a younger brother that plays really well. He, as you see, he has very solid strokes. You know, he, he, remember, he reminds me a bit of a Jose Acasuso type of player. Serundolo's uh, particularity is that he is very potent. He, his ball travels very heavy, especially on the clay. He's very tough to beat. That's where he has his, his best results. And I think what clicked was he got the opportunity to travel a little more as he started winning because to come out of Latin America, especially a place like Argentina, where, where the money has been devaluated, it's just very expensive to go out and play. So it took him a little bit more to take off, but he's confident and he's there to stay. He's, this is a solid player that's going to have a eight, 10 year career inside the top 50 for sure. And hopefully he can go a little a little bit further, but I think the fact that Diego Schwartzman got there a few years ago inspired a lot of the, the players in Latin America. Diego, a, a guy that had to overcome so many difficulties, uh, similar to what all these guys have, have to overcome. Uh, I think it's a great example and a, and a great inspiration for guys like Serundolo and the second one that I bet is going to be Baez. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Baez is the son of a superintendent, very um, humble beginnings and very humble person. This is a guy that uh, has had to scrap and fight and, and just scratch very, very hard for very, very long to be where he is. And this is a hungry guy, a humble kid. And, and uh, he, he, he just cap captivates everybody that he meets. Great story. Keep an eye out for him because this guy really deserves it. At the height that Sebastian Baez plays at, there's always a concern of, is there going to be an issue with firepower? And what is the ceiling going to be? And, you know, you hope to reach the heights of, let's, you know, a David Ferrer or a Diego Schwartzman. Um, how do you think his height plays into to what he does on the court. And, and where do you see, I'm curious, where do you see his ceiling as a player bias? Listen, I stopped putting ceilings. Diego Schwarzman just blew me to smithereens, you know, and then yeah. he, he had, it's a known story that everybody went in the twelves doubted that he was going to do well in 14s and 16s and 18s. And then at the professional level and look at him top 10. Uh, what a story. So I think that's part of the inspiration. But Baez, I think, is it, Schwartzmanesque in, in terms of the talent, the touch, the footwork, uh, but could have a little bit more natural power than Schwartzman. Schwartzman improved tremendously when he hit the gym. He put on some, some, some muscles on him. And I think that 
that took him over the line and made him escalate to places that nobody thought was possible. I think Baez is following a similar blueprint. Baez on the forehand, Schwartzman on the backhand. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Uh, Baez has a bit more of a wristy game, a bit more of a touchy-feely game. Schwartzman is more straightforward and gritty. Yeah. Uh, that that might be the difference, but the similarities you cannot help but notice. You know, these these are two guys that are five six, five seven that don't have the powerful serve that have to grind it. That it's difficult because their matches are usually longer, so their their weeks are longer, so it's harder to be consistent. And uh, but they just have a, a, a as small as they are, they just have a huge will to win, and, and that's what takes them over the line. Yeah, I I love it. I love both of those guys. I I've been enjoying uh, watching them. And uh, we will continue to enjoy that because they, they both have youth on their side at the moment. Let's uh, get to those power rankings, Nico. Do you have, do you want to, so we can do this two ways. Uh, we can go player by player. I don't know if, have you specifically created that, that list? I didn't tell you to. Um, but, or you could respond to mine. You could say too high, too low, just right. However you want to go. You're the boss. Uh, shoot me your list, and I'll tell you if I can, if I agree with it, or if I rearrange it. Okay. I bet you have it written down right there. I do. I do have it written down. <laughs> All right. Shoot. I don't want to go in. I don't want to go in order, though. I want to. Oh, no. uh, let, yeah. Let's start with. I think. Let's start with the guy who uh, the two guys we first talked about to start the show, Alcaraz and Kyrgios. Right now, and this is before I saw today's match, but I'm not sure I would change it. Right now, I do have Carlos Alcaraz at number three heading into the U.S. Open. And Novak, I'm not including because I think the chances that that he's able to get into the United States at this point are are really minuscule. So so Novak's not a part. So uh, I have only two players. You could probably guess who they are over Carlos Alcaraz. Do you agree with that? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree um, with that. Nick Kyrgios, I have right after Alcaraz. I have him at number four, which shocks me. He has never been. Nico, I've done this for every single Roland Garros and U.S. Open for three years. I don't think Nick Kyrgios has ever made my my top ten, or maybe for Wimbledon, he's been at the end, nine or ten. He's never been this high, uh, but he continues to to kind of prove that this year is different. So you have Medvedev and, and who else uh, before Alcaraz? Rafa. The second? Rafa. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. So, so we have at five. Well, uh, first, actually, let's, since I uh, spilled the beans here, Nadal versus Medvedev. How do you see that at the top there? One A, one B. Do you do you feel like one has the edge of the over the other? Well, it depends uh, how on the wear and tear. You know, if Rafa gets there uh, winning easy, or if he has to labor a lot, he he will be in tune. He will be a hundred percent for for the U.S. Open. You can you can bet on that. Uh, but because of the style of play and the difficulties through the years of Rafa in New York, I give Medvedev a bigger chance of beating Rafa uh, in in New York than uh, than maybe in in another tournament on the same surface during the summer. 
so I think I think Medvedev has the, the, the age factor going for him, but never bet against Rafael Nadal. I learned that many, many moons ago. To me, every tournament he enters, Rafael Nadal is the favorite to win it. So if the health is 100% and yes. the energy levels is 100%. I, yeah, well, I, the energy level you. is always 100%. That's what's so admirable from, from that guy. You know, hats right. off to Rafael Nadal. He's the ultimate pro of all pros in any sport ever. It's getting late in the season, Nico, and there's really only one match that Rafa lost where his body wasn't deterring him in some way. And that was Alcaraz in Madrid. Every other loss, you could say his body sort of failed him. So I think to say Nadal is in that number one spot, if his body is right, um, I think that really aligns with everything we've seen this season, plus the intangible factor and the greatness uh, that that you're referring to with, you know, by saying something like never bet against Rafa. Uh, so the way I look at it right now is I have him at number two, but I'm kind of, I'm, I'm on the same page as you. If he shows me some good health, he's going to be at number one. Agree. Totally agree. I mean, we're there. I, I would put both of them at one tied with exactly 50-50, talking about Rafa and, and, and Daniil, depending on how Daniil, you know, plays next week and, uh, and uh, the draw that he, he gets at the Open, because that, that is a factor, definitely. Nowadays, tennis is so competitive that if you get a couple of five-setters the first week, your chances, you know, just diminish uh, in important fashion. But uh, you have to agree. Now let's keep going. What do you have, five and six? We were uh, talking before before we did this about about the whole concept of it, and I said contenders, and you said there. How many contenders are there? So, where where's the drop off? Is the point where if this player wins the U.S. Open, you'd be stunned? We got through the first four: Medvedev, Nadal, Alcaraz, Kyrgios. At number five, I have Matteo Berrettini. Is is that? Is after Kyrgios, is that where you draw the line of, I'd be really surprised if they won the tournament? Well, Berrettini already, you know, has done really well in New York. So he's a guy that has all the weapons. He didn't look too good yesterday. He was not that motivated. I don't know if there was something wrong with him physically or mentally. But, you know, easy loss there. Uh, and it, it surprised me. I didn't see the desire in the eyes. So I don't really know what's going on with, with Matteo. But you have to put him... In, in the top six, seven, because the guy has all the weapons. Totally agree. Australia. You have to put Tsitsipas as well somewhere in there, even though he has not been playing to, to his or our expectations. I think, you know, he's always going to be a contender for majors. He's already done really well. He has the mindset and he can go off uh, on any two weeks on any surface. My first instinct was to put Tsitsipas at five. And then I looked at just the, the history at the U.S. Open, and I don't think he's been past the third round. Um, I know he hasn't been to a quarterfinal. He had that Borna Chorich loss a couple years back where he had six match points. Um, and then last year he had the fifth set tiebreak loss to, to Alcaraz. So that is why uh, Tsitsipas at six, but I put Mateo over him because of that. Makes sense. It, it, it's, it, has, it, has, it has some logic to it, yes. Why do you think Tsitsipas has not 
played to uh, to expectations because I I agree with that. Well, there has been some tinkering in the box. I don't know if that has something to do with it. They brought in Thomas Anquist. Uh, Papa started separating uh, a bit. Then he came back. I don't know where they're really at. He just has not been getting the results. He's been getting beat. Um, that aura that he had maybe a year, year and a half ago, that he could only lose to three or four guys tops, uh, it's it's kind of gone. I don't know if the guys in the locker rooms discovered something. But uh, to be honest, I have not watched him play too much lately, but I'll get back to you on that. Okay. At this point in time, it's it's been a while since January, but in January we were talking about he had the elbow surgery and he changed his strings to protect the elbow. Right. And uh, I've heard him way further into the year. I mean, after his match against uh, Rune at Roland Garros, reference again his strings. So I'm wondering if he's had confidence in in his equipment all year long. What do you think? Uh, what do you make of just that technology aspect of it? Well, I had a chance to to hold one of his rackets in my hand, and it, it, it was like the hammer of Thor. You know, it was heavy, big grip, tight string. So it does not surprise me that his arm, one way or the other, kind of sent him a message. And that that's just very personal how you play with the particularities. So once you start tinkering with that, you change your racket, you change the strings, you change the tension. Maybe you change the grip in order to to play pain free. But it's very difficult to adjust when you've grown accustomed to something and the progression has been natural up to that level. I know it was very difficult for me. I had to go down significantly in weight, and uh, it took me a while to to figure out. So maybe maybe. That's exactly what's going on with him. Andy Murray, another guy who uh, tried to make a change earlier this year. He went right back, right back to the old one uh, after it didn't work. At number seven, after Pass, I have Felix Ojealiasim. If we were doing this back in February, he would have been higher. Uh, I thought he was about to explode, and that hasn't quite happened. With that being said... He's made the quarterfinal or better at the last four majors, and that started in New York last year. Yes, again, a complete player. He he has improved his uh, forehand issues, which you know were serious. I think uh, Uncle Tony has helped him a lot in, uh, in that sense. So if if he clicks with the serve and the athleticism that he uh, naturally possesses, he is a legitimate t- title contender for for the majors, definitely. Yannick Sinner has had an incredible couple weeks, looked amazing at Wimbledon, looked amazing at Umag. I have him at number eight. It feels right now like maybe he should be higher, but I'm just trying not to have too much recency bias. I'm trying to look at the bigger picture, and that's why Sinner isn't higher. Do you think I got that right? Yeah, Sinner should be higher, but he has so much room for improvement. That's what's so uh, downfounding about this guy. He has room for improvement on the serve. He has room for improvement in the strength. That doesn't give him the consistency in a long three out of five, two-week event to to maybe win it. But if he gets the, the right draw and gets rolling the right way, certainly has the quality and and and, and the uh, the presence to to win a major. He is already a contender, definitely. Let's see what he does in Canada and Cincinnati. He's definitely someone with a chance to rise up these uh, these power rankings, which we'll get yeah. 
updated, Definitely. of course. At number nine, big win last night. Uh, Taylor Fritz over over Andy Murray. There's uh, I feel like there's a lot of different opinions that fly around about Fritz on on social media, whether or not he's a, a real serious contender and a top player. To me, this year, especially on hard court, top eight player in the world. Um, and he he's comes in at number nine for me here. What what it, what have you made of Fritz this season? I feel like he's he's made a big leap. He's deceivingly um, intense. You know, this kid wants it. He works hard. I've we've heard it from our colleague Paul Anacom that he's been working hard. Not lately. He's been working hard throughout because he's a guy that wants it, that believes that he belongs there, and that's very important. And and American tennis needs that push. Needs that that great champion. And uh, to now. You know, Fritz looks like uh, should be the guy. I hope he can channel that energy in New York. Uh, he's more of a laid-back uh, California guy. But uh, if he could channel and feel comfortable in that atmosphere, he certainly has the weapons to do it. He has improved tremendously up at the net. He's moving a lot faster side to side. To win a major? Oh, I don't know, man. I think I yeah. think we've reached our... our, our our boundary there. I, I, I certainly wish it for him. You know, I, I think the best of the guy, I've heard nothing but great things about him. So um, it would be great for tennis. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I agree with you about, about the movement side. It's something that I don't know. He could put in the maximum amount of work and it might never get to quite that level because let's be honest, there's, you know, not everyone has equal genetics. Not everyone has equal ability to become as fast as uh as a carlos alcaraz um but you feel like he's a talent maximizer and that his game is starting to round into as complete a package as he can possibly make it well you can really tell he's worked you know to to you know shave the edges and make his game smoother he still uh, struggles defending He's a big guy. Sometimes one, one leg goes one way, the, another leg goes the other way. Maybe some dancing lessons could do him some good. Uh, but it, that's been his Achilles heel, you know, the, the movement. He's, he's not in the, in the top two tiers of, of, uh, of characters in, in terms of movement on tour. And that's something that he really needs to improve if he wants to, you know, be a contender in every major. Yeah. And he's he's become as aggressive as possible, I guess, to make up for the the lack of movement. Um, he's also up a break right now as we're recording this on Francis Tiafo. So, uh, number ten to end to round off the power rankings, and then we'll talk about some of the guys who I've left out who maybe maybe you'll feel like they should have uh, found their way in there. Uh, number ten for me is Andre Rublev. Nico, I don't really know what to make of his season. He had a big February, but it's kind of a time of year where it feels like the stakes are a little bit lower on the indoor hard courts. And uh, since then, I just feel like he's lacked big wins. He's still been picking up, you know, a lot of wins every single week, winning some matches. Uh, but it feels like a little bit less than he would have desired. Do you, uh, do you feel the same thing that, that Andre's a little bit frustrated right now? Well, as competitive as he is, he must be. You know, he has to be happy with the career. 
he's having or you know he's had up to this point i think he has achieved great things he has won many crowns he's one of those guys that rules the 250s the 500s but when it comes to three out of five he's gotten better as he's gotten stronger he was very very thin very light so had to make a big effort in order to put to punish that ball he doesn't have to anymore he's he's as strong as an ox uh, and he has improved that Achilles heel of his, which was his second serve. He was having huge issues, uh, getting attacked all the time. People yeah. right crowding that second serve. He has improved quite a bit. I think he's going through a bit of reorganization in his game. He needs to work on, on playing better inside the lines, feeling more confident at the net. He's, he has the hands. He's just not used to. Uh, attacking, closing out the points uh, at the net, which is something that could help him play uh, shorter points because he just is not used to coming in. So I think he's lacking a couple of elements in, in terms of being a major contender, but he's been right there. I mean, he's, he's won matches at all levels and he's someone that nobody wants to see across the net. Fantastic player. He's been in the U.S. Open quarterfinal a um, couple times, ran into uh, to Medvedev. Am I am I crazy to have Fritz over him? I feel no. like that's something that that some people will will critique in in the comment section, Nico. <laughs> well, you do share the same passport, so I, uh, you know, it's 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 a yes. toss up. <laughs> I will be accused of bias. Yes, <laughs> there there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think uh, Rublev has been better up to this point in the in the majors, but. I do feel that the fact that he's playing at home, he's going to be comfortable, that might give uh, um, Taylor Fritz a bit of an edge. All right, the guys I've left out, two stand out to me, and then no one else, although you can bring up someone, no one else was really uh, making me think very hard. Uh, the two guys are Hubert Hercotch and Cameron Norrie. Yeah, two guys that uh, are sneaky, you know. Both are very dangerous opponents that have beaten the best players in the world. Uh, uh, Hercatch maybe more than, than Nori. Hercatch mm -hmm. has improved tremendously in, in terms of movement. Nori is just a guy that, I mean, all off. I, I, that's a guy that I put a ceiling <laughs> and blew it right off uh, as well. I never thought. He had the kind of temperament and the time and the kind of uh, resources tennis wise to get to to top 10. But he's proved me wrong and I admire and I and enjoy watching him. Uh, so it would never surprise me. We know he's ready. We know that he's fit. He might not have the weapons. He's gotten a lot stronger. So now he gets some free points off the serve. That's been a big difference in the last year and a half for him. But again, major contenders. It would not surprise me if either one of those guys uh, had a great two weeks and came out with a uh, with a major title in hand. Uh, Hubert Hercotch, we have seen a spectacular run from him in a major, Wimbledon last year. He beat Daniil Medvedev. He destroyed Roger Federer and, uh, and lost in the semis to Berrettini. We've also seen a lot of early ex exits at the major. Uh, why do you think there's such a big delta between what we sometimes see from Hercotch on the positive end and the negative end? I, I just think his style of play suits some players and doesn't suit others. He's a guy that doesn't give you anything, but doesn't take anything either. You know, he has the power issue. He's a big boy. 
He has improved his movements, but he's not one of those guys that has knockout punch. With all due respect, awesome player. I mean, yeah. I couldn't even tie his shoes. Uh, but that's what I paid for, you know, to, to analyze from a neutral point of view. And I just think that Hubie has issues with players that are a, a bit more crafty, that are shorthanded, that don't miss too much. If he gets the the uh, unforced error type of player, that's a good matchup for, for Hubert Hurkacz. Uh, up to this point, if he gets uh, somebody that's not going to give him too much, uh, that's when it, it gets uphill from him. And, and then on the clay, he plays very flat. So on the clay, his ball just doesn't develop much speed after the bounce. And, and that's very comfortable for the clay quarters to hit him off the court with some angles and, and high balls. He, he doesn't feel that comfortable because of the style of play that he has. A lot of the times when I watch him, I think if this guy had a big forehand with a lot of racket head acceleration and could really generate, that would be that would be such an incredible package in a player. There's so much else there. Obviously, you've mentioned the movement and the serve is huge at his height. That's kind of the part of his game that does have the muscle. Uh, I, I feel like he's a forehand away. I don't know if it's going to happen or, well, the, or not. The thing with the forehand is that First, he has to solidify it. When things get tough, Hubie's forehand can break down. I've seen it more than once. And the locker room knows it, and he knows it. So that's a serious issue. That's a serious deficiency to have because under pressure, it's, it's when the boat starts to, to take water, and, and sometimes it's just impossible to save. All right, in recap. Number one is Medvedev, two Nadal, three Alcaraz, four Kyrgios, five Berrettini, six Tsitsipas, seven FAA, eight Sinner, nine Fritz, ten Rublev. I have Rafa first. Okay. Uh, I have uh, Medvedev second, and I have Kyrgios ahead of uh, Alcaraz. Kyrgios ahead of Alcaraz. Yeah, that's how that's how we put the top four. That's wow. that would be my yeah my take. And then after that, you're with me. After that, it drops. After that, it, it drops. Uh, fifth, eh, it's a tough one. It's a, it's a tough one because eh, you need to wait at least for this first one thousand, you know, to see how the guys sure. are playing. But you, you, after what I saw today from Kyrgios, uh, I have to put him ahead of, of Alcaraz because his serve is just insanely good. And with that serve on a fast surface, you have a big, big advantage. But after that, it, it drops. Didn't like what I saw from, from Mateo, unfortunately. I think he's an awesome player. I enjoy watching him play. Um, but uh, watch out. Watch out for Tommy Paulman. Watch out for Tommy Paul. He's playing good tennis. Francis Tiafo playing awesome tennis. He wants it really bad, and it's in going in the right direction. Taylor, Fritz, you know, he it was a question mark of how he came out of the, the injury, but mm-hmm. he looks to be just fine. He looks to be playing just fine. And I'll get back to watching some more tennis and, and, and keep making my mind. But, you know, these are all awesome players, and it's great to see this week in Canada, next week in Cincinnati, how they uh, they go against each other in these one thousands that are just filled with top quality talent. It's it's a privilege to be uh, 
watching this type of tennis. It's great tennis. Absolutely. And uh, we have the privilege of, of hearing you on Tennis Channel, breaking it all down, which is uh, always a, a great way to start my morning uh, to hear my good friend and the brilliant Nico Pereira. Thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah, always my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, good luck with the show. And uh, I'll see you at the office tomorrow or the day after for sure. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Have a good summer, guys. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.